I hope uh, I hope you learn how to wait on the Lord. I I would love to sit here for another hour and do that, but I know that most people's ability to wait isn't very long. So hopefully you develop that skill to sit before the Lord and just be quiet before him. How many of you guys know that in order to do that, you have to have a renewed mind? (laughs) And maybe you get in your prayer closet and your mind starts just going a million miles an hour. It's funny that we want to be able to control our mind when we want to, but we let it run amok every other moment of every other day. It's important to have a renewed mind, to be able to harness your thinking, isn't it? Yeah. If you want to know how, how much control you have over your brain, just try to find a quiet spot and sit there and just close your eyes and meditate on Jesus. And you'll see how much influence it actually has over you. Because our church culture is made to be entertained. No silence. You got to keep things moving. <laughs> Remember that story in Revelation where it says there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour? <laughs> and a thousand years is as a day, and a day is as a thousand years. So half an hour is, I don't know what, 7,500 years. <laughs> we need to learn to be quiet so we can hear the Lord. Amen? All right. I'm glad you're here this morning. Um, thank you for coming. Thank you for being with us. We had a great time this weekend. I, I, I was hoping to see more of you guys, but I understand our schedules are, are, are crazy, and life is in the American church is crazy. But we had our camp out this last weekend, and, and we had a great time. And uh, we missed all of you guys who couldn't be there. And uh, we hope maybe next year you'll be able to, to meet with us. Um, Big, big announcement. Abe talked about it a couple times, but I know during announcements, everybody's talking, and sometimes we don't hear things that we need to hear. Um, Tuesday and Wednesday, we have our, our, our big conference, and um, David Hogan's coming. Um, so if you want to be a part of that, if you want to help us, get with me and let me know, and I will um, try to give you something to do when you're there. Let me know what time you can be there. We will need help. We will need volunteers. We may end up with too many, but I'd rather have too many than not enough. Um, those of you who don't know anything about his ministry, um, I don't have time to go into it, but he's been a very big help to my life. I know there's a lot of antagonism against him and things people say, but um, you know what I've found is that the people who scream the loudest about what's wrong with the church and what's wrong with people are people who don't do anything themselves. So regardless of what the world thinks about this man, he's one of the only people I know that actually have physical scars in his body for the gospel. It's been shot, stabbed, beat, whipped, strung up in trees, left to hang there for preaching Jesus to people who didn't want to hear it. So until the antagonists do something like that as well, then their opinion really doesn't matter to me. That man was there for me in a very difficult time in my life, and I got to stay in his house for a couple weeks and just spend time with him, and he treated me like a son, and it was very healing for me. And I've been in his home, and I've seen how things operate. Nobody's perfect, but 
he loves the Lord and God's doing things in his, his ministry. So we encourage you guys to come. It'll be 6 o'clock both nights at the PAC Center, which is on Goblin Drive. It's the big building they built off of, of the school there. We'll hopefully have attendance parking, letting everybody know where to go. But we welcome you to come. Amen? All right. So um, hope to see you both nights if you can. Ephesians chapter 3. Um, wow. So, you know... This series is not something that's just a good word. If that's all this has been and that's all you walk away from with this, you missed the entire point. Um, This is meant to be embodied. This is meant to be a, a personified reality of truth located in a people of God whom God can have his habitation and rest through. Unfortunately, much of the American church, God is forced by their very lifestyle only to visit the houses they build. But God's ultimate concern for humanity was to have a family in which he could abide. My mentor says it this way, He said, revival is when God visits the houses we build. Kingdom establishment, revolution, is when God inhabits the house he builds. Does that make sense to you? Who and what is that house? It's us. So many times, though, the church is building its own tabernacle and then asks God to visit and bless it. In other words, we do what we want to do, and then we pray for God to bless our Ishmael. Does that make sense to you? When's the last time you've actually stopped and asked the Lord about anything in your life? Or have you just barreled through every idea that pops into your head? When's the last time you've actually been led by the Spirit? See, we'll quote that. That we're led by the Spirit. And you know what that means to most Christians? That means some sort of super spooky spiritual idea that somewhere during church we're being led by the Spirit. Being led by the Spirit has a tangible reality and a connection to your daily life, more so even than it does in a spooky church service. (laughs) And that doesn't mean you take your spookiness out into life. It means that you literally let God speak to you in tangible, reasonable terms to where you become, we become, the church becomes viable to the woman at the well. Does that make sense? John chapter 4, you don't have to turn there, but that's my reference to that. If you don't know that, you can go read that. So Paul is... Again, picking up in chapter 3, all of it is one large segment of a letter. If you've missed the last three Sundays, four Sundays, you understand you've missed chapter 1 and chapter 2, and we're now in chapter 3 of Ephesians. I'm forced to go back and maybe rehash some of that stuff, but I don't have a lot of time. Paul writing to Ephesians is the practical reality of how we're supposed to live as Christians. If the church was stripped of every book in the Bible except the book of Ephesians. 
she would have enough to be able to understand the plan, the will, and the purpose of God, not only in a spiritual reality, but in a practical one as well. And if the church would just obey the book of Ephesians, we would turn the world upside down. But you have to understand, when you're born into a culture, yours happens to be an American culture. When we're born into a culture, the culture normally dictates how we interpret God. And it shouldn't, but it does. So the individual idea of Americanism and this idolized idea that we have that you are your own person is totally unbiblical. You are members of a body. And a community idea has been so perverted in the American church that when you mention the word community, which is a biblical reality, people automatically think cultism. Do you know why that happens? Because the enemy is so against biblical unity that he tried desperately in a few unsubmitted people to pervert the word by having them do it falsely so that way anybody else who came behind them and tried to do it correctly was branded by the same term that they were when they used it incorrectly. He hijacked the definition of community by people who weren't submitted to the gospel and who were power drunk. So much so that when you see any resemblance of people living life together, that it's got to be a cult. <laughs> because we are Americans and we're individuals and my opinion is better than yours because it's my life. No, it's not your life. Paul says you've been baptized into one body. You are not your own. You're bought with a price, the Bible says. You owe nothing. You're just lying to yourself, telling yourself you actually have rights when you don't. Self-deception is the greatest form of deception you will ever have because the devil can't be blamed for your condition. It's, we did it to ourselves by not understanding what God intended and what God has done. And that's why when you step back from the apostolic teaching and you look at Paul's letters, you see that he's not randomly writing uh, letters to people talking about just tidbits of encouragement. He calls himself a wise master builder for a reason because he has an agenda. He has a starting point for the church. And he says, it's my duty to present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. And there's a way to go about it. And I'm going to show you that way. We do not get to randomize scripture and cherry pick things, put them on our bumper stickers, and because we've had a salvific reality, claim that everything that we believe is now truth. I've seen people living in gross immoral sin to my face, quoting scripture. <laughs> it's like the word hasn't even had its place in you. You shouldn't let it come out of your mouth. Living like the devil and you wanna argue terms of biblical reality because that's the level of deception that people operate in. They think Christianity is mere theology. The argument of revelation and different gifts and the disagreements that we have with one another, that is not what God intended. And there's this obsession in modern culture to be right and to expose hypocrisy while being completely blind to the hypocrisy in your own life. It's like we think we win an argument because we expose somebody's hypocrisy. 
Congratulations, you just managed to expose somebody else while ignoring your own. Name one person on the planet that isn't a hypocrite. There ain't one. You say, well, Jesus, well, he's not on the planet. He's in heaven. <laughs> so be careful when we're pointing our long, bony fingers at one another. Amen? This reality of Ephesians is the practical gospel that Paul talks about, and, there's a, and, I, and I, I'm, I'm posturing this teaching on the, on the reality that we're going to chapter 6. Okay? Chapter 6 is the seduction of, of power that every Christian wants to utilize and feel like they're this mighty person in the Lord because they can cast out demons. Do you realize that the disciples cast out demons before they were born again? It had nothing to do with them. They were still selfish, carnal, unbelieving, and uh, <laughs> abandoning of, of, of their love. And yet the name of Jesus still worked in their mouth. Does this make sense to you? So if power isn't the issue because these disciples had it before the cross, then what is the issue of God after the cross? Is it more power or is it something much less uh, flashy? Like loving one another. So you will find the degree of your Christianity lies in your ability to love your enemy. And your inability to love your enemy exposes your degree of Christianity. Because anybody can love somebody who's good to them and nice to them and okay with them. And, but the essence of love rests upon your ability to love those who are antagonistic to you. Those you do not like. Those who are hell-bent on your destruction. Love one another. But, no, there's no buts. There's a period. See, we think people should be entitled to the love we give them if they're worthy of it by how they treat us. Yet, at the other side of our mouth, we claim that God loved us while we were yet sinners. Because we're self-absorbed. We're self-partial. Anybody in here not self-partial? Please don't raise your hand. <laughs> because we all are. Turn to chapter 3 of Ephesians. We're going to go to verse 1. Paul just got done talking about Christ bringing in Jew and Gentile to one new man. This is the mystery of the gospel. The mystery wasn't increased power and revelation. The, increase was, the mystery wasn't some uh, hard understood truth. This mystery was so mysterious because it was so simple. The mystery was the unity of the body of Christ under the headship of Jesus. Why is that a mystery? Because it's an impossibility without Jesus Christ bringing in himself into that body. Because you and I are naturally predisposed to be antagonistic toward each other. Diversity <laughs> self-implodes without the headship of Jesus. But with the headship of Jesus, it's a great mystery that such diversity comes into such unity. This is the power of the church. The power of the church is the difference between you and me. 
coming under the headship of love and being, uh, being predisposed to letting somebody else go before yourself. Deference and not fighting our own way. Yet we have relationships in here, husbands, wives, children, congregants, marriages, they're all we can begin to do, like my mom was talking about earlier, is pick each other apart because all we see is the evil that's being done to us. Do you realize that that evil being done to you is your opportunity to become like Christ? And yet you're blind to that reality because all you feel is the emotional volcano inside of you that someone did you dirty and Jesus sent that to you to actually show you where you really are so you can begin to change. Because if you were as holy as you thought you were, it wouldn't move you. See, the problem isn't what's done to you. The problem is how you respond to what's done to you. Because Jesus got his rear end beat and he stood there silent and turned the other cheek and let people put nails in his feet and in his wrists. And he could have called 12 legions of angels to murder everybody in an instant, but he didn't. It was your sin and my sin that he willingly took because he is love. He didn't choose to love you. He can't help himself. And when you become love, you will not be able to choose to love your brother. You will not be able to help yourself. You put two people like that in a marriage and their fighting ceases. Christ Jesus made me his prisoner, verse 1, so that I could help you Gentiles. It's amazing how Paul starts chapter 3. This reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ, Jesus, for you. What he's saying here is, is that my imprisonment was for your benefit. Imagine if God calls you to such things. Somebody's waiting for the glory that's going to come from your life that you might not even be able to participate in, but you gain it and release it to someone else. As Paul says, I fill up that which is lacking in the body, which is suffering. All apostolic teaching will come from the root of suffering. Period. It's funny to me that the, that word apostolic reality is coming back in the modern church, but then people are grabbing a hold of the name apostle and putting it in front of their name, and yet they're the last ones to suffer. <laughs> Anybody that ever tells you that they're an apostle and they don't suffer for someone else, Underneath the radar, they're a liar. Period. Apostles suffer so that other people can reign without them. That's what they do. They're the fathers of the church, and they're willing to get up and go to spiritual work so the rest of the family can be blessed. Does this make sense to you? The delivery of the mystery was wrapped in a mystery. Paul is delivering the mystery of the gospel to these Ephesians, yet it took him something of a sacrifice to be able to unpack this to them. They weren't there when he spent 14 years 
in the deserts of Arabia, unlearning everything the religious system taught him. This is why mind renewal, the series we preached before this, is necessary to come into before you come to Ephesians. So if you're jumping in midstream and you've not followed us through this, you're going to miss parts of what God intends for you to get to this point. Because people get saved and they think automatically because they got saved and they love Jesus and they look around and they go, well, I love Jesus more than everybody else around me. Therefore, I must be called to ministry. So they start their own ministry and they don't even follow the pattern of discipleship themselves and yet they expect disciples to submit to them. But yet Paul himself not only went through much isolation and restructuring of his brain on the theology that he learned his entire life, 14 years of re-education to be able to, be, to hold the gospel the way it should be held. And not only that, but yet suffered for these people. All these things brought the reality of what Paul's releasing to the Ephesian church to them. And it takes a father, it takes somebody in your life willing to suffer in areas that you will not to call you out of where you are. Let me say it this way. Somebody you haven't met yet is waiting for you to embrace the suffering that's in your life so that you can set them free when you get there. But if you don't, you're a robber and a thief to someone else's glory self-imposing your life only upon you and only willing to suffer when it benefits yourself. This thing is corporate. Paul starts his chapter here. It took me going to prison to become what you needed me to be to write this letter. Anybody want that anointing? We can pray for you real quick. That's why it's lacking in the body. <laughs> you know, in John 4, it was Jesus' weariness that brought him to that woman's need. It says, Jesus, being wearied with his journey, sat down beside the well. Sometimes what you want, God, I need strength, Lord. He's like, no, I got you right where I want you. See, because you think, I think, we think, that all of Christianity is supposed to be this constant euphoria of like power and strength. <laughs> it's the exact opposite. Many times God does his greatest work when you are at your lowest place, but most times he doesn't have very many people to use in that low place because their eyes are so on them that he has no ability to use them because they're self-absorbed. When you're weak, So then why do you fight your weakness? Why don't we embrace it? Because there's that Adamic nature still hiding inside of us that doesn't want to suffer for someone else, especially someone who's not worth it, in our opinion. Yeah. Guys, I've done this a long time, and the ones that I didn't think were going to make it, made it. And the ones I thought were going to make it, they didn't. So you know what that tells you? you got to give 100% to everybody and let God sort it out. <laughs> You'll always find the roots of suffering in apostolic teaching. Okay, Verse 2. He says, you've heard 
of the dispensation of grace of God, which was given to me for you. Did you get that? See, Paul was the agent of God's grace to a people. Let me say it this way. Everybody who thinks they can get this stuff on their own is deceived. It takes someone else. You didn't even come to Jesus without someone else. Yet somehow this American gospel has lied to you that now that you get saved, you just need to hear the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit speaks through people. Am I saying that he doesn't ever just speak to you personally? No, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying you can't discount the fact that he uses a voice other than yours. And usually when you're trying to hear that ethereal voice, he's speaking to you through someone you don't like. Well, I'm just waiting to hear the Lord. And I'm just chuckling in the background going, no, you've already heard him. You just didn't like the the vessel it came through. You didn't like what he said, so you're just going to hear something else. Well, guess what? If God's already spoken through someone else and you're waiting to hear this thundering voice in the heavens, what are you going to hear when you finally hear something? It ain't going to be God, but you're going to think it's him. So who is it? Either way, there's only two options left. It's either you or the devil, and neither one can be trusted. I, I pay very close attention. See, I don't run the show here. Like, I pay very close attention to people in my life that, that throw checks at me. And I'm like, they're like, oh, I'm not sure about this. And I'm like, okay, well, if you have a check, I feel like I heard this. I'm going to back off of this until we are all in unity on it because something's wrong. Because there's one voice. And God's not going to tell you something. And stuff. You, know, you know how many divisions happen in churches because, well, I heard the Lord. And everybody else was like, well, I didn't hear that. We've gotten so far into our individual identities that I can't even say certain truths without people being offended by it. Like this one. It's arrogance for you to think you heard God when everybody around you who is righteous, holy, and moral uh, moral in the Lord hearing something different. And you use yours and ignore theirs. It's arrogance. Because I'll, I'll prove this to you, where Paul's going, okay? He says, you've heard of God's kindness in choosing me to help you. The gospel comes through people. It, and when you go out and witness, what are you doing? You're asking people to listen to you, but are you listening to others? Or do you live on a one-way street like liberals do? It goes both ways. And if it doesn't go both ways, you're a narcissist. You're a narcissist, period. It, it's, this is a, a two-way street where things are coming out of you, but you have to allow them to come in. You have much to give, but you have much to receive. I don't care how far you are on this. I've had people in this body who are so far behind me in this spiritual journey, bless my socks off. <laughs> just ministering at home group and teaching and saying things that just really stir my heart. It's beautiful. 
They have much to give. And I have much to receive. You understand this? It takes a body. (laughs) Some of y'all say you want more of God. The problem is God hides himself in his people. You have to be the one that's mature enough to dig past the dirt and find the pearl. Because you're going to see a lot of dirt in the vessel that's bringing you the word. But if you can't see the pearl, then I venture to say you probably can't see it yourself either. Because if you're used to looking at your own dirt, guess what you're going to see in everybody else? And then we think it's prophetic to be able to show people their dirt. No, it's prophetic to show them the pearl. Does the dirt have to be dealt with? Yes. Paul deals with it in chapter 2. Didn't he not bring up their sin? But not before he brought up their destiny. Go back and listen to the chapters. You with me? All right. He says, in fact, verse 3, this letter tells you a little bit how God has shown me his mysterious ways. That by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I've briefly written already. He alludes to it in chapters 1 and 2. He talks about it in other, gospel, in other epistles he writes. And this mystery is like, everybody's like, oh, it's the mystery of the gospel. It's really simple. It's two things. It's Christ in you and Christ in the church. It's that simple. The, the, the mystery is the church unity that comes by being under the headship of Christ. That's the mystery. Why is Paul dealing with this in chapter 3? Because chapter 6, the spiritual warfare issue, requires a body that's complete and whole in order to take on the principalities of darkness. I don't care how anointed one man or one woman is, they do not possess the ability to take on principalities alone. You can run from conference to conference and seminar to seminar and have your favorite speakers and preachers, but they are, they are unqualified to take out principalities without a body behind them. It doesn't matter how sharp the tip of the spear is. If there's no weight behind it, it's just a needle. Does this make sense? So this mysterious ways of bringing into the reality that existed before time, God's intention for the unification of the church, the restoration of his family, bringing everybody into one, that's the mystery. No more disunity, no more division but yet much diversity. Does this make sense? Okay. So you can't have unity and diversity unless there's deference. Which means we don't always get our way when we think we're right. See, if you haven't figured this out yet, let me, figure, let me just share a little token of truth that will be true for the rest of your life. God doesn't care about right and wrong. He cares about who can manifest his son. You can be right and win an argument, but all you did is bring more division. See, that's, what we, that's why we can't defer, because we're looking at right and wrong. Well, I'm right and they're wrong. 
Well, the fact that you can't defer now makes you wrong. Because we were wrong, Jesus was right, and he didn't force us into anything. He came down here and served the ones who were wrong. He washed your feet when it should have been the other way around. <laughs> if you can't wash the feet of the people in your life that are wrong, you don't have a Davidic heart. Does this make sense? Hmm. Verse 4, he says, as you read this letter, you also find out how well I really do understand the mystery of Christ, by which you, when you read, you may understand my knowledge and the mystery of Jesus. That sounds arrogant. <laughs> but you understand, why is it his knowledge? This is a Jew who gave his life to Gentiles. That doesn't happen. When you're raised in a culture that says, stay away from those people, to have the transforming nature of Christ so deep in you that you now want to give your life for those people you were taught to stay away from, this is the mystery revealed. It's no different than in modern day society where somebody's born and raised in racism and they have an encounter with God and they give their life to the people they were taught to hate. That's a mystery. This makes sense. Because racism is from the devil. It's demonic. It's division. One new man. No male, no female, no Jew, no, no Greek. One. And Paul gave his life and put his money where his mouth was by ministering to a people he was taught to stay away from. What's that modern idea look like in our life? Who do you naturally stay away from? because of whatever you were taught. Love them. This is why I usually, in my Facebook posts and feeds, I don't touch politics or anything like that, because if I do, the moment I do that, I lose those people on the other side, and I lose the ability to be loved to them. Because no matter how right I may be on a political issue, this American country will fade away one flag in heaven and it ain't the American flag <laughs> it's the banner of love might as well live under it now with me alright it's a mystery to find unity in a, in, a, in a group of people who disagree. And the only, the only icon of, of proof to be able to say what's happening here is, is they, have to, they, 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 they love each other. That's the only way we can describe the unity we're seeing amongst such diversity. Because they love each other. Why? Because all warfare has its roots in love. All victory has its roots in love. What is love? It's not an action. It's a person. It's a DNA. It's a life force. It's something that exists for all eternity, backwards and forwards, and it's what empowers us to become the sons of the living God. It's the meat and potatoes of, of who, we're, who we are as a new being, a new species of humanity. The love of Christ. Does this make sense to you? Verse 5, he says... 
other ages this was not made known to the sons of men. And now it's been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. By the Spirit to who? The leadership of the church. Why? Because even gospel teaching, God wants it to come through the order he established. Well, I don't like that order because pastors have hurt me in the past. Well, they've hurt me too. And now I am one. I don't buy your excuse. If you got hurt so bad by church that you left Jesus, you weren't following Jesus in the first place. I'm sorry somebody hurt you. I am. I truly am. But if you're that offended, then your eyes were on an idol. And any idol that you have in your life, you can blame the pastor, but many times you know what it was. It was God exposing you to something that they had wrong in them so that he could break the idolatry because he is jealous for you and he will not have anybody before you. And you blamed that pastor or that person when it was actually God who allowed you to see that, not so that you could be a critical, you know, self-proclaimed prophet, but so that the idolatry could be broken and you could come back to him. No other gods before me. Do you realize that what Paul called carnality in the Corinthian church is what we call preference? Well, I like that preacher better because he, well, I like, I, I, I follow this guy and I'm not really following this guy. Paul says, don't you know that makes you carnal? <laughs> yeah, we all got our favorite preachers, you know. You know what that means is we're not really willing to hear the word of God through anybody else. And if you carry that kind of preference in your own person, then God's going to be sure to choose the person that you don't want to hear from to bring his word through. That's why he uses me so many times, because people don't like me. I'm okay with that, though. You don't have to like me. You do have to love me. That's your problem, though. That's, that's on your end. I'm okay. You with me? Verse 6, it says, this mystery is this. The Gentiles would be fellow heirs of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ through the gospel. They should be fellow heirs of the same body, brought in to the fullness of the covenants of God, sonship, kingdom, ruling, reigning, unity, Imagine these Jews, all of a sudden, their synagogues being flooded with Gentile believers who just who, who stink of pork because they just ate before they came their bacon. The offense. We've lived our whole lives pure and holy, and these beasts come into our, our church. See, a father that sees his family as living separate from him is not a fulfilled father, so he wants his family to come together. Verse 7, God treated me with kindness. It became a minister according to the gift of grace that God gave to me by the effective working of his power. It became my job, some versions say, to spread the gospel. Make sense to you? It's amazing that Paul's mindset here, he's like, hey, I, I was treated with kindness, and yet he suffered the most out of all the apostles. This guy's crazy. 
He was whipped individually, 300 individual lashes to his physical body. God treated me with kindness and gave me the, the ability to carry the gospel. You see the mindset? I'll suffer whatever it takes, Ephesian church, to bring you Jesus. I wonder if we have that same heart. All right. I don't have time to go into some of this stuff. Um, verse 9, he says, God who created everything wanted me to help everyone understand the mysterious plan that he'd always had hidden in mind and to make all men see what the fellowship, the fellowship, the unity of the mystery of the gospel is from the beginning of time when God hid these things and he created them in Christ. The apostles and prophets unpacked the reality of the unity of the saints. Why is this important? Again, because chapter 6 cannot happen unless you're unified with the body. There are certain things, certain battles, certain principalities, certain powers you will encounter as an individual Christian. And if you have not established a healthy body around you who knows you, who loves you, who's walked with you, you will not be able to win some of those things on your own. It will take the prayers of the saints. It will take the body shoring up, the body healing itself, the body standing around itself to begin to get through certain circumstances of life. It happened to me. It'll happen to you. And if you're an isolated believer, well, I don't need to go to church because I am the church. No, you're only one part in the wall, and a rock by itself is not a threat. It will not stop an onslaught of an enemy. It has to be built together upon the foundation of Jesus as the cornerstone and the apostles and prophets, every stone, every joint supplying until there's such an impenetrable force that the enemy looks at it and says, we can't even touch it. But if you're just a block laying out in the desert, that does not provide much cover. Yeah, you're a part. You're not wrong in that. You're just not connected to anything else because of how you view people. Verse 10, that God would use the church. This is an amazing verse. To the intent now that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. That the wisdom of God would be made known. How smart is this man? The ancient of days. Whose scientists still can't unpack certain things like light. What is it? They don't know. They have no idea. They've reduced it down to two components, and they don't even know what they are. They know how they operate. They know how they act. They know how to manipulate it. They don't know what it is. That God would make known the manifold wisdom to the church or by the church to the principalities, powers, and heavenly places. Read, read that. God uses the church to show forth to the principalities and powers his wisdom. And when we don't operate and live in a way of Christ, then we're demonstrating to those powers that the wisdom of God is not operating in our life. But when we operate according to the book of Ephesians all the way through, and we operate in the wisdom of God, the principalities and powers in heavenly places take notice. In other words, a well-lived life and a whole family and somebody who's not divided threatens the principalities more than someone with a title before their name and a little bit of charisma with a microphone in their hand. A whole family threatens darkness. But we don't look at it that way because that seems not powerful. It's not flashy. It doesn't bring in lots of tithing. 
Why is that family established in God so powerful to the principalities? Because it's another generation established that it's going to have to deal with. And it's a people looking beyond themselves, beyond their ministry and their effectiveness and their revelations. It's a people giving themselves to a generation that's going to outlive them because they're involved in something bigger than their ministry. And when you raise people to be whole and healed, it threatens darkness. Because when the temptations of drug addiction and all these other things begin to come into the children, they have no need of them. Because they've been loved. They've seen unity. They've seen peace. They live in a home where there's no chaos and torment and trial. And the enemy plays on all that childhood trauma to bring in the drugs to numb the pain. I have never one time in my life seen an addict who did not have a traumatic childhood in one way or form or the other. Never once. Never once. It all stems from childhood trauma. Why? Because <laughs> mommies and daddies are too selfish. To live for Jesus. The church family is the theater of display for God's manifold wisdom to the powers of the air. We are the theater in which all powers watch, both angelic and demonic. We are the display of God's eternal grace through mankind to see in the ages to establish and demonstrate the reality of heaven here on this earth by willing vessels who've been conquered by love. We are the ones that both powers look to because it has to be played out in us. That's why Jesus had to become a human. It was given to humanity, lost by humanity, regained by humanity, and it's supposed to be reestablished, reinforced by humanity. The Word made flesh. Not your opinions, not your ideas. I don't care how well you argue scripture. I care about how you treat your wife. The people I want to raise up as leaders, I don't care if they're smart. I don't care if they know the Bible. I don't care. I, I don't care. They'll, they'll learn that. I care about their character. I care about how their homes are raised. I care about how they treat people. That's power to me. See, there's something about the church that, that, and, and the issues that, of our earth, of our life, our job, our career. There's something about that that, 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 that the powers look to. They're, they're, they're connected to it. Those things are connected to a spiritual reality. But we think they're insignificant. Why don't you just go to wash the dishes? No. No, how you do that trains your children to be content in whatever they're doing. Because if they see you complain about having to do those things, what are they going to do? <laughs> see, that the Jesus teaches us to pray what? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. What? In earth as it is in heaven. In earth. What are we made of? In earth, just like it's in heaven. In other words, the model down here has to be exactly there as it is there, but it has to be done willingly. 
Jesus knows that if he sees, the demons know that if he sees, they see things happening down here that look like the kingdom of heaven, then by default, they are the sons of God because the only way the kingdom can be built is by the Spirit. So when the powers of darkness see a whole family and a whole church and a whole community operating in certain ways, they are threatened by those things and they begin to attack that church in division. Why? Because if they can divide the thing, the threat stops. Why? Because if they can divide the church, they divide the mystery of God. The mystery is the unity of the saints. It's the power of warfare. It's the power of laying down our opinions and serving one another. You with me? So I'm going to prove to you that this life is connected to the spiritual reality. In Luke 15, 10, you don't have to turn there. It says, Jesus says this, just so I'm telling you, he says that there's joy before all the angels of God when one sinner repents. Why? Heaven's moved when it sees heaven invade earth. It's not just, oh, and we're so glad they repented. It's, we have an establishment of a foundation in their life now, and from that beachhead, we can move into the earth. This one soul will now hold the ground in that family, and from that family, we will launch our empire into other realms of darkness and take over demonic forces. Joy comes because the kingdom has now got a greater foothold than it had before. Does this make sense? So if there's joy in heaven for one sinner who repents, how much joy or, or false joy is there in hell over one Christian who's operating under the headship of Satan through offense and division, hate, bitterness, blame, offense, See, the devil has no power, and you've been given all authority. So the only way he can use something against God is to use what you have against, against God and himself and against his people. This is why I said, if, you, if you, you don't realize how much power you have. The devil doesn't have any, so he uses the wife to rail on the husband constantly like that's going to work. But all that's happening is, is you become the mouth of, uh, mouth of Lucifer yourself. yourself. You, 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 you're literally the voice of Satan. Dividing your own house. And, and in all reality, your, your, your husband couldn't be perfect enough. It wouldn't, it, nothing would be good enough for you. If he actually did do the things you asked him to do, you'd just require more. Because you're not satisfied inside. That's why you treat him like garbage. Or vice versa. This makes sense? We need whole families. 1 Corinthians 4 9 says, uh, he says, I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men to be sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to the angels, and to men. What Paul's saying to the Corinthian churches is that my, our lives as apostles is on display for angels to watch. They're paying attention to what we're doing. So you think your day is mundane and boring. All of heaven and hell are watching how you treat people, how you renew your mind, how you embrace opportunities instead of calling them difficulties. This makes sense. So the human life is the, is, the, is the attention of all spiritual forces. Revelation 19.10, it says, John fell down at this angel's feet to worship him. And this angel says, 
You must not do that. Listen to this. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Our lives are directly connected to the angelic realm. They are servants with us. And if we're fighting against them by operating under demonic principalities, we're fighting against the armies of God while having the praises of Jesus on our lips. Does it make sense to you? The church, his family, is to show the powers and the authorities of spiritual this world the wisdom of God. There's something about defeating principalities that requires a family, a church, to be what she should be in Christ. Does it make sense? You can't get to Ephesians 6 unless you're doing these other things. I've seen it, guys. I've, I've watched people almost comically just tr treat their family and their church just divisive, opinionated, selfish. Yeah, they're the first ones that are like shaking their fist and telling the devil, you know, where he needs to go. And I can almost just imagine the devil just laughing at him going, man, I own every part of your nature. I don't have to obey a thing that's coming out of your mouth right now. Jesus I know, Paul I know. Who in the world do you think you are? Oh, it has to work. No, you empower them with your authority all week long, and then you want to use that authority against them. No, they've been inflated with your ego all week, and now they're using that against you, and they don't have to submit because by nature, they rebel. And if you're in rebellion, you have no authority because you're operating in the same nature. This makes sense. I think revival is whole families, not good church services. Luke 6, 48, Jesus is talking about the man who builds his house on the rock and the storm and the wind and the houses. And he says he's like a man who built his house on the rock. He dug deep. He laid the foundation in a rock. When the flood came, the stream beat against it violently upon that house, and it could not shake it because it was founded on the rock. Everybody thinks, well, that's Jesus. It is Jesus, but you understand he's the cornerstone. There's more to the foundation than the cornerstone. You know that, right? People think Jesus is the entire foundation. He's not. Biblically, I can show you this, which means that if you're going to build your house on the rock, it's not just some sort of salvific experience that I just, I believe in Jesus, so my life is built on the rock. No, the rock is a cornerstone, and out of that cornerstone is the foundation that's just laid upon the apostles and prophets. So if you don't want your house to fall, you've got to be submitted to something other than what this idea of, of Jesus that you think you hear in your head. Let me show you this. Ephesians 2.20, we, we just went through this in chapter 2. We are all built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So what's the foundation? Well, it's Jesus. No, he's the cornerstone, and the foundation is the apostles and the prophets because there's more of us than there are of him. You understand this? The cornerstone sets the direction of the foundation. It establishes everything in the directive order of how it's supposed to be built. But the cornerstone is not the entire foundation. It's not. And Jesus doesn't want it to be. He wants his apostolic and prophetic order outlined in the church and everything built on that. He says, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom all the building is framed and fit together to a holy temple to the Lord. All the parts, all the pieces. 
in whom you are also built together for a habitation of God. Not a visitation of God, a habitation of God. It takes more than one opinion to build the kingdom. Does this make sense to you? So that rock that house is built upon in that chapter that Jesus is talking about is more than just, oh, I'm saved because my life is with Jesus and he's the rock. No, it's people on the foundation laid out in the cornerstone and that's what brings the security and clarity when storms come because you're connected to more than just yourself. Well, I don't believe in that. Well, I'll show you again. Revelation 21. The foundation of the kingdom. This is heaven. Heaven we're talking about, right? What does Jesus teach us to pray? As there, so here. We're talking about building the church, right? Revelation 21. You ever wonder why these verses are in the Bible? I'm going to help you. The foundation of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper. Second, sapphire. Third, agate. Emerald, fourth. Onyx, fifth. Chameleon, sixth. A car carnelian. The seventh, chrysolite. Eighth, beryl. Topaz. Uh, Chrysophis. Jathan and Amethyst. All these, found, all these stones are laid in the foundation. What does the Bible say that the 12 stones were in the foundation of God in the kingdom? They were the, the apostles. So what he's saying here is that each apostle was a stone. And each one looked different. But they were all in the framework of the order of Christ. So one stone looked like sapphire. Who that was, I don't know. Maybe it was Matthew. Maybe it was John. Each one, Jesus prophetically and significantly states that you're all different. You're, what, is, what does he call us? Living stones. You're living stones. So when Jesus, in John's seeing this, he's seeing these, these stones as if they're, they're beautiful things, but they're men whose lives were polished under the order of the headstone of Christ. And he says, you are also fitly framed together in the building of this thing. And you guys know if you have Old Testament teaching at all, you understand that when they built the temple, the first temple there, the Solomon's temple, those stones were cut a long ways from where they were actually put in. And they were carried after they were perfected to the temple and placed in without the sound of work being done. What does that mean? It means these stones, you and me, are being cut here on earth a long way from where we're going to be. But when we get there, we're going to fit perfectly because we've submitted to the headship of Christ, living stones, a habitation of God through the Spirit. This makes sense to you. It wasn't just like these stones weren't like, you know, rocks. They were significant to the lives of the people who lived them as a foundation of the church upon which everything is built. Does this make sense to you? And you need an entire fortress to take on powers. Your individual rock may be pretty, but it needs the rest of them. Each apostle, the temple stones, cut and placed. You with me? Verse Timothy 3.14 he says, I hope I can come to see you soon. I'm writing this to you so that you would know. Verse 15, so that even if I can't come to you, listen to this, you 
would know how people should live in the family of God. Paul's telling pastoral epistles to Timothy. He's teaching him how to be a pastor. He says, I'm writing all of this so that if I don't get there, that you would know how to live as a family of God. Right? You guys understand the power of context in Scripture? So he's laid the context that you would know how to live as a family. What's next? Right? The family is the church of the living God. And God's church, listen to this, is the support and foundation of the truth. No, Jesus is. No, he's the cornerstone. The church is the foundation of the truth of God, of Jesus. You say, oh, I don't know if I believe that. Well, then why is not Jesus the entire body? He calls himself what? He's the head. A head without a body is just gross. It needs a foundation, doesn't it? It needs feet and hands. But is he the feet and hands? No. You are. I am. You with me? He's not complete without us, not because he's not made complete, but because he chose to not be complete without us. Does this make sense? And without a doubt, verse 16, the secret of our life of worship is great, and Christ has shown us in human form. The Spirit proved that he was right, seen by angels. The message of him was to the nations, to the people of the world who believed in him and taken up into heaven. In another translation, it says, he was manifest in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, and believed on in the world and taken up into glory. Six elements of human life that required him to live in such a way to be able to have the authority over the powers and principalities. Do not tell me that what you do down here doesn't matter. It took Jesus living a specific way in order to establish himself above all powers and darkness. And it was a way of humility and service, not dominance and with me. Verse 11, God did this according to his eternal plan. He was able to do what he had planned because of Christ, Jesus, and what he had done, what he accomplished in Christ. The plan of God was made complete because of Christ, and the plan of Christ is made complete in us by his grace. You with me? So, verse 12, Christ now gives us courage and confidence so that we can come to God by faith. We have the right to boldly enter the throne of God now because of Christ. We can war from the second heaven or the third heavens because we can walk in by faith. Every warfare that's fought has to be done by faith. It's not going to be because you did something and shouted and screamed. No, when you pray that way, it's supposed to be because you were moved by faith, not so that you could stir it up. You pray by faith because faith is a tangible substance. It's not a hope you're trying to get. People confuse faith and hope all the time. They think hope is faith and faith is hope. No, faith is when you know you have it. So therefore, because you have it, you go to war. Hope is different. With me? Hebrews 10, it says, you have boldness to enter by the blood of Jesus, the veil of his flesh. In other words, how he lived this life. That's the veil we walk through. And then he goes down. He says, as you see the time approaching of him coming, the head coming back to the bride. As you see the time approaching, what does he say? Do not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, even as the manner of some is. 
but as you see the time approaching, gather more. This idea, oh, I don't have to go to church because I'm a, I'm a church. No, I mean, I, I had a guy tell me that the other day. I'm like, you're an idiot. I was like, do you understand the Bible even tells you? Because he was talking to me about the return of Christ coming really soon. And I was like, if that's the case for you, then you're actually not even obeying the word of God yourself because the Bible says that if he's that close, you should be gathering even more. Really what it came down to is he was an isolated renegade cancer cell that didn't want to submit to the body. You know, that's, that's what cancer cells are, right? They're cells that don't take orders from the head. That's all they are. They're renegade maverick cells that run through the body and do their own thing. You with me? Verse 13, I'm going to try to finish in the next few minutes here. Therefore I ask that you not lose heart in my tribulations for you, which is your glory. Do you understand that things that he was going through was for their benefit? He's like, look, don't be depressed because I'm suffering for you. It's okay. This suffering is going to produce something in you that's going to be great. Verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knee to the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. At this point in Paul's gospel right here, he stops because of everything I've just said, all the powers, all the principality, the unity, all the, the things that are impossible without God. He stops and feels the need to pray this through. Why? Because without this prayer, he knows that everything he just described is not going to come to pass. He says, I'm bowing my knee, and I'm going to show you what I'm praying. Next verse. That the whole family in heaven and earth is named. You're connected to a family there and a family here, and it's all connected by Jesus, and I need to pray this in. Next thing. That he would give you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might in the spirit in your inner man. Now, let me ask you this. Because we're talking about a body, right, which has many parts, is that inner man in you individually or is that inner man in the corporate whole? It's both. So when he's praying for being strengthened in inner man, he's not just talking about you. He's praying that the corporate whole would have the strength in their inner body to be able to comprehend what? Next verse. That Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith. That you would be rooted and grounded in. Next verse. And that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width, the length, the depth, and the height. Do you realize that's all of the cosmos? <laughs> Scientifically, width, length, depth, and height. That, that touches everything. Of what? Next verse. To know the love of Christ in every area of existence. In the height of existence, the depth of existence, the low parts of existence, the width of existence, every part of existence that you would know the love of Christ. In your high times, your low times, your bad times, your good times. And how would we know that love? Through one another. This is how we war. We go in unified. Does this make sense? Next verse. Listen to this. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or think according to the power that works in us. Do you know how many times that verse is quoted by Christian people without doing chapters 1 and 2 first? 
And we just want to live however we want. Like, well, brother, you know, the Lord's able to do exceedingly abundantly. He hasn't even done the minuscule and the unassuming in your life. What are you asking for more? Like your character's bad and you want more? You, you, you live your whole life in fear that he's not going to be there for you. And you want to exceedingly abundantly? See, unto him who is able to do these things according to the power, his power that works in what? It doesn't say you. Does it say you? No. See, we don't like that. You know why? Because we don't want to be dependent on somebody else's journey. Sorry. How you live affects me and how I live affects you. Anybody's ever been hurt by church knows that. The solution isn't staying away from it. The solution is to let it form you into the image of Jesus. Next verse. To him be the glory in the church by Christ. To all generations forever and ever. How does Jesus get glory? Through the church. Not through the individual. Not through little ministries. Through the entire body of Christ. And if that body's divided, marriages are divided, kids are divided, how effective are we going to be at bringing him glory? Does this make sense? Ephesians 3 is Paul's discourse to us on the importance of unity. He's going to carry that into four, and then he's going to get into the nitty-gritty. Marriages. Children. Why? Because how we live makes a big difference in the reality of the kingdom. hard to wake up to the reality that as a Christian your life is either helping or hurting the body of Christ there's no middle road let me ask you this are you being a help to the body or are you being a hindrance selfish isolated individualism is a hindrance Pastors have a comment that they say constantly. They get around each other. And it's just this little thing that goes through pastoral circles. 20% of people do 80% of the work in the church. It's true. Eighty percent show up just to be blessed by those who are sacrificing to give. Because everybody of the 80%, they're busy with their own life. God could draw a circle around them and say, you've never prayed for anybody out of you and your family. Problem is, he defines family different than you. <laughs> he defines family by his blood, not yours. If you haven't learned to love his blood, 
which is in his family. I wonder if he's going to look at you and go, I don't know who you are. See, salvation has its fruit in discipleship, which means you care for, live for, and exist for somebody else's instruction. Discipleship is not Christianity where you come to church once a week and you sit there and endure a message and wonder when he's going to get done so you can go eat. It's a lifestyle where people can literally pattern their life after by watching you. How you treat your coworkers, how you treat the person at the counter, how you treat your waitress when she forgets to bring your tea. Because you're not entitled. You're a servant. I tip usually really well when the waitress and waiter are really bad. Because I don't want my gift to be based on someone's performance. Because God's gift to me wasn't based on mine. And I want to be like him. My job is to give, not to determine who's worthy. Amen. This is the power of the church. You can stand. I pray this has been a blessing to you. I pray that, that God moves in your heart. If you want to go through the other sermons there on the website and they're on Spotify and just Google Proclaiming Jesus or any podcast platform. I'm going to ask you guys to pray for me and my mom. We're about to take a trip. We won't be here for the next two Sundays. I pray you all come. If you're here for me or anybody else, you're not here for the right reasons. You need to be here for Christ, regardless of who holds the microphone. But we'll be gone for a couple weeks, so y'all pray for us. Pray for our, our, our travels will be, be safe and that um, the Lord has his work and his way in us. And we will miss you all greatly, and we'll pick this up when we get back. So, Father, we love you, and we thank you that the mystery is revealed amongst us every time we love one another, that we're unpacking the mystery of the gospel by our service, our deference, our love, our submissiveness, our humility to one another, that the powers of, of darkness that rage and demand to be served and demand to have power and authority are undermined every time we choose to go low and to love and they lose their grip they lose their power they lose their authority in our homes and our churches when we forgive one another and we walk in the gospel and the love of Jesus help us love you more until we become that love and help us to be patient with each other as we see our brother and sister becoming the same. We honor you as one body. We pray as one body. And we believe and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.